0: Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership podcast. Today I am super excited to be speaking to the one and only Glenn Scrivener who, if you don't know who Glenn is, you must have been living under a rock is all I can say. Uh, Glenn, (laughs) originally from Australia, Glenn has lived in the UK for more than half of his life. He was a curate at All Souls Church in Eastbourne, where he and his family still worship. And since 2010, Glenn has been an evangelist at Speak Life. And in August 2014, you became the director of Speak Life. Glenn is passionate about people meeting Christ and equipping Christians to share their faith. He's often found speaking at churches and universities, producing online media in a studio or in his office, writing books and other evangelistic material. Glenn is married to Emma and they have a daughter, Ruby, and a son, JJ. Glenn, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jess.
0: Well Speak Life on YouTube has over thirty-two thousand subscribers, which is quite a reach. I
1: guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it it certainly puts us like in, in you know the, the, the upper echelons of of of, of YouTube, but um yeah, it's it, they are dark arts. The sort of the, following the algorithms and the and the analytics and the statistics. I'm not very good at that. I'm I'm very good at just sort of blabbing at a microphone and seeing what happens. And it turns out if you do that consistently over the course of five, six, seven years, then something tends to build and grow. But uh, it's it's a long old slog, really.
0: Yeah, but I mean, you must be blabbing some kind of sense because enough people are wanting to listen. And what's interesting is that you you you're not afraid to do two things. A, engage with what some people might consider to be controversial subjects um, like race and wokeness and sexuality and sex sex abuse scandals in the church but then also your um, yeah you, you seem to be able to hold quite a you might say conservative line on a lot of these things and do so quite confidently um, lovingly compassionately but also quite confidently you seem to, seem to be a a confident evangelical um, erring towards the conservative end of the spectrum, if we say that. And I would just love to know, maybe just, I, I haven't said I was going to ask you this, but maybe just since my brain's gone there, what's that like being a Christian voice in media? Um, holding the kind of traditional orthodox maybe that's better than conservative traditional orthodox christian views i think conservative means too many different things too many negative things non-negative connotations what's it like holding a a traditional orthodox view on many of these things um in the media would you get um a lot of uh, you know trolling or hate or anger and how do you process some of that or do you get a lot of encouragement
1: well, the thing is, everybody gets trolling and hate online. So you you may as well say something interesting <laughs> while you're at it. So yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't like like the word conservative in a theological sense. Sure, sign me up. Um, in a political sense, not so much. And I, I and even in the theological sense, what what are we trying to conserve? What we're trying to conserve is the Jesus Revolution, which is the most radical movement history has ever seen. It's the most diverse, inclusive sociological phenomenon. The church um, that encompasses people from all kinds of backgrounds and and has united a greater spectrum of political views and racial and ethnic uh, identities and languages and classes than than any movement could even like approach. And so. Um, am I conservative? I guess what I'm trying to do is try to be radically centered on the most revolutionary vision for life that there's ever been, which is Christ's vision for life. And, and I think if you try to center yourself on Jesus, you'll end up saying something that's, um, that appears angular, that appears as though it's cutting against left-wing and right-wing, as though it's cutting against the conservative political types and the progressive political, uh, political types. It might seem like it's cutting against the the kind of the the anywheres who are sort of globalist and, and look out to the, the ends of the earth for their sense of identity, and the somewheres, the sort of the more nationalistic types. I think, essentially, Jesus has built our world from the ground up, and... What we see in culture is uh, a, a kind of uh, a fall from the original kingdom vision of Jesus. And so we, we end up sort of leaning left or leaning right, leaning conservative or leaning progressive, leaning nationalist or leaning globalist in all sorts of ways. But all of those uh, falls from an original vision that Christ has. And so the idea is not to Somehow be in the center of left and right, to be in the center of conservative and progressive. The, the idea is, is really to learn again from Jesus, repent and believe as we look at Christ again. And I think he will confront left wingers in certain ways, and he'll conf- confront right wingers in certain ways, and he'll confront centrists in certain ways. Because again, it's not about splitting the difference between these things. So I think you are able to say the most interesting things about culture because you are conservative theologically, because you want to conserve the Jesus revolution that really has built built our world. And so that's that's just a real conviction of mine, that, that the more profoundly biblically Christ-centered my theology is, I think the more um, interesting uh, my views of culture will be. So that that's the goal.
0: Mm. So what is it that distinguishes that vision from some of the more progressive Christian visions that we've seen I know so you released a podcast and a being just quite clear in your opposition to some of the church's recent movement on gay marriage for example the Anglican Church in particular. Uh, and, you know, you speak about it compassionately and lovingly, but from your point of view, you're going back to a more faithful vision of the Jesus movement than the progressive types might be. But from their point of view, I, I suppose they're merely extrapolating the, the latest logical next step from the Jesus movement um, as it began. So I'd just love to know what some of the sensibilities are that maybe distinguish yourself and the way that you understand the Jesus movement, and perhaps the people that you disagree with.
1: Well, on sex, I guess you've got a competition between two different sexual revolutions. Now, there's the sexual revolution of the 1960s, which is the, the place that we all go, and when I say sexual revolution, we're thinking about the swinging 60s, we're thinking about contraception and abortion, and the, uh, the break that contraception and abortion makes between sex and kids. And up until that point, um, just biologically and naturally, sex led to children and meant that you were going to have a more conservative you know, view of who you have sex with because the consequences of having sex uh, were, were far more costly in terms of child child rearing. Through a technology called contraception and through widespread you know, abortion that followed that um, technology, we broke the link between sex and its consequences. And that really served male interests, um, because male sexuality um, is um, – uh, men on gen- in general have a, a far greater appetite for sexual encounters and sexual variety. And the sexual revolution really served male interests. It really didn't serve women in general. It really didn't serve children at all. There were certain gains that happened with the sexual revolution of the, of the 1960s, some of which I celebrate. But in general, the the move in the in the 1960s was basically to equalize the sexes by saying, um women through contraception could now be as liberated as men has always had always been in their um, sort of sexual appetites and sexual expression. And so it, it was always presented as liberation and equality. It had to be presented as liberation and equality because in a Christianized culture, we all love the idea of liberation and equality because Jesus taught it to us. In effect, though, um, it served male interests who have always wanted to have more uh, sexual partners and more, more sexual appetite. and men who have not wanted to be tied to the consequences of their sexual encounters, i.e. their women and their children. Um, and so that's the sexual revolution we generally think of when it comes to sex, but the original sexual revolution was the thing that actually liberated, that actually equalized the sexes, and that actually led to the blessing of the world, because in the first century, Jesus came along and he said, here's the way we're going to equalize things, men, you've got to be as restricted as women had always been expected to be. Women in traditional cultures had, had always expected to be virgins before they were married and then, uh, you know, faithful within marriage. Um, and then Jesus absolutely demolishes the double standard. The New Testament absolutely demolishes the double standard. It says, like a men and women are uh, expected to be chaste before marriage and faithful within it. And that that is the only context for sexual expression. And that was a revolution that absolutely has built our world. And it, and it led to the equality of the sexes in in so many ways, and it it led to the greater flourishing of of society um, because rampant male sexuality destroys cultures, and it needs to be restrained and trained. And so what I'm always trying to do is pursue the sexual revolution that really leads to progress, that really leads to liberty, that really leads to freedom, that really leads to equality, and I, and I think the 1960s one is an enemy of all, all those values, actually. And if you want to truly be into freedom and progress and equality, I invite people to come home to the original sexual revolution. So th- those are some of the moves that I try to make.
0: Mm, no, this is helpful. Sorry, I, I wasn't necessarily expecting us to go here, but I find this very, uh, or straight away to go here, but I find this very interesting because... Help, help me help others then understand how that 1960s revolution has led to um, the redefinition of marriage, as we understand it, so that marriage can now be, legal, in a state at least, be between two men and two women.
1: I think there are a lot of things um, leading into that. But one thing it does, when you, um, when you separate sex and children, then sex starts to be seen far more as a leisure activity, it's recreation um suddenly it's it's no longer a sacred thing i mean the the christian vision is you've got two bodies that are more like temples than they are like playgrounds and that sex is is more sacred than it is profane um and and therefore and and that that vision makes sense when sex leads to this incredibly costly precious thing called you know a child um, you're you're going to be much more choosy about your partner, about your mate. you're you're going to be much more choosy uh, about when you have sex and with whom. And um you're going to want to stick around afterwards if sex and children are connected in the ways that, you know they have been up until kind of contraception. but as as soon as you break the link between sex and children, um sex is less about biology. It's less about offspring. It's certainly less about commitment and covenant and marriage and family. And alongside that sexual liberation, you you start to get, well, for for the hundred years before that, you, you, you get this sort of Freudian sense that my identity is expressed in my sexual desires and the way in which I choose to live sexually in the world is a massive identity marker. Technology enables me from the 1960s to express myself in ever broader kinds of ways without much consequence. And so it, it becomes much more important um, the, the kinds of sex that I like to have. Um, and it becomes much more possible to, you know, experiment sexually and 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 try on different identities. And so, you know, roll roll on down the years and Sex is divorced from marriage and family and children. And it's connected instead with, you know, who I am and and, and in a Christianized society, um, in which um, minorities are prized and not crushed, which is a good thing. Like you know it's a, it's a very Christian in- instinct to say um, that we don't want to lose individuals in the shuffle. And that everybody's particular experience of life needs to be prized and included. Inclusion is a wonderfully Christian kind of virtue. Welcome is a wonderfully Christian virtue. Um, having diversity within one you know, within the one fabric of one body, that's an incredibly, you know biblical idea that that Christianized societies have taken on. But you couple that with I am who I choose to have sex with. And you start to have, you know, sexual identities. And, and you know, in one sense, of course, you, you don't want to treat gay people differently to straight people because they, they have an identity, right? And straight people have an identity and you want to treat them equally. But because we have divorced like sex from actually its it's natural environment, which is marriage and family and those bonds of unbreakable love that, that will last a lifetime, we are orienting ourselves around, you know, sexual choices. And and then all we can do is affirm each and every sexual choice as though it's exactly identical to each other sexual choice. Now, without contraception, you just can't do that because there are some kinds of sex that leads to babies and there's some kind of sex that doesn't lead to babies. And if marriage is on the sexual revolution view, then marriage is... One more choice that you can make to identify with another human being for as long as you want to. And this is, this is one option for how you express yourself. Whereas I think prior to contraception, what is marriage is like linked to children and childbearing in an absolutely profound way. And you can't, you can't just make choices for yourself. Because whatever you do as a married couple, like it will have consequences for like the offspring that you have. Um, And it's so fascinating that in all of the conversations about sexuality and sexual freedom, like don't really talk about the kids, you know, Um, and we don't even think to think about the kids because contraception has broken that link Um, to go into it more. Um, Mary Harrington's got a new book out called uh, Feminism Against Progress, and uh, she's a really interesting kind of, she's a Christian adjacent thinker. And um, she goes into all the different ways that contraception has changed our views of sex and sexuality and identity and self. It's a really interesting read.
0: Mm. I, I think you recently interviewed Mary Harrington for your podcast as well, uh, and yeah. you call her a Christian adjacent thinker. So uh, I guess in saying that you're not saying that she, you're saying that she's someone who doesn't profess explicitly Christian faith which, if that's the case, I presume would put her in a similar category to others who you point out in your book, The Air, the Air We Breathe, um, which is a fantastic book. And you've already started alluding to a lot of it there with uh, how the Western values that we came to prize came to be. But there are other people you you reference in there, like um, Tom Holland and Louise Perry, who I know you've spoken to both of them on the podcast as well. Are you are you seeing this quite broadly then, a kind of uh, a Christian adjacent subculture emerging in the popular Kind of secular society speak, and how do you think that that's come about? Where do you think that that will lead um what's what's some of your reflections and predictions
1: I don't know I'm not very good at predictions, but um you know Mary Harrington writes for Unheard as does Louise Perry as does Tom Holland those those three that you've already mentioned uh, unheard is a really interesting kind of outlook on culture it's um it's hard to pin them down kind of uh politically um you might just think they are the same crowd as the spectator and and therefore you know on the on the right of politics and and yet there is just some really interesting exceptions to that rule like i mean mary harrington was in a lesbian commune for much of the the 2000s um louise perry's very much of you know, a person of the left and 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 um, you know, she she always jokes that when she was growing up uh, in her household, they bought two copies of The Guardian um on, on the weekend, um, because it was just so, so popular in the in the household. Um so I think that crowd are very interesting. And what they're doing is noticing the sort of things that Tom Holland notices in his book Dominion, um, that it's not that we are irreligious no one in the world is irreligious it would be it would be a quite stunning thing wouldn't it if um there are all these parts of the world that have sort of religions to them and then the west has just oh we we just oh we used to have the christian thing but we've just opted for this totally different thing called secular humanism or atheism or whatever um tom holland is, is noticing well no it's it's a christian heresy like secular humanism is a christian heresy it's one development um, that has gone in a certain direction from Christian orthodoxy, but it is recognizably Christian-ish in, in the shape of the values that we all hold. And I am noticing whether it's at that more um, the level of sort of cultural elites like uh, uh, Tom Holland or just the, at the level of like my neighbors and friends. Um, they are saying to me things like, gosh, well, I guess everything's come from Christianity. Hasn't it?" I better read the Bible? Do you, you know, can you suggest where I, where I begin? Or, uh, the father of one of my um, daughter's school friends just said, um, two, three weeks ago, he he just said, oh gosh, it's all come from Christianity. Um, what time do you guys meet at church on a Sunday? <laughs> like, like that, For there, there is a certain brand of person for whom that's just the obvious next step. There was a guy on the... Plain seat next to me last week, um, who has absolutely no Christian understanding whatsoever. He's set foot inside a church like twice for a couple of weddings, and that and that's that. But he believes very strongly in human rights and human equality, and and we just had a conversation about that and where it comes from. And as soon as he saw that he didn't have a good explanation for where it comes from, and as as soon as I described like the Christian understanding of why we believe in these things. He was like, oh, so that's what, that makes a lot of sense. And like, I gave him a gospel and I gave him the air we breathe. And, and he was like, I will definitely read this. And he's, he's just sort of fascinated by it. So I I think we're, we're realizing that the story in the West has run out, (laughs) you know, the the sort of the, the, the liberal progressive secular humanist story just doesn't make any sense. And, and what we have considered to be self-evident has just broken down so much you know over the last 6 7 years all the consensuses that we we had about just liberal values um have completely disintegrated and we're we're recognizing that we're living in the crater of this impact called christianity <laughs> and the shape of our lives has been absolutely determined by Jesus and his revolution and more and more people are waking up to it. Tom Holland's podcast with Dominic Sandbrook is, you know, number one in the UK, number one in the US, number one in Australia. Um, people are, people are getting evangelized um, through this, this kind of thinking that that the Jesus revolution is still active and the doors of the church are still open and, and people are making that journey.
0: I mean, it, yeah, there's there's a lot of, people out there saying very christian sounding things which is very encouraging isn't it but i know even you know people like louise uh, the, the interview you did with her i listened to that last time i found it fascinating so encouraging and um, there seems to be this kind of intellectual this growing intellectual class that are willing and happy to identify with uh, that their values come from christianity but they're not necessarily taking that full leap to saying i'm therefore a christian now i suppose you, you the reasons for that will be as numerous as the individuals but what are some of the obstacles that you observe that prevent people from saying hey yeah these are christian values to be i'm now a fully fledged jesus following christian myself i think for some of the people
1: that you mention they recognize probably correctly that if they came out as out and out christians um they would be taken less seriously um and i think that yeah i think that's probably a true assessment um that saying the things that they say from the perspective of uh, a secular worldview um is taken more seriously and and if you know and when i say stuff well of course i'm gonna say stuff because i'm an evangelist and i'm a church of england minister and um so i i can understand why um some of these christian adjacent um thinkers take the route that they take i think the the step that needs to be taken is number one, people need to realize that they are already believers. Um, and so like the guy on the, in the, on the plane seat next to me, um, he did not think of himself as a believer. And and in fact, he, he used that language. He, He said, you know, I, I couldn't take the leap of faith. I, you know, I don't have enough faith to be a Christian. Um, and yet as the conversation unfolded it was very obvious that he believed all sorts of things that had absolutely no grounding whatsoever and that actually my belief in human rights with jesus underneath me was a lot less absurd than his belief in human rights with fresh air underneath him <laughs> right <laughs> and you know i'm constantly i was constantly saying to him in the in the conversation that you don't need to take a leap like you're already dangling midair, you need some ground beneath your feet and, and only Jesus will do. And I think I think the the journey that needs to be taken is one to embrace that you already have a theology, right? It might not be Orthodox Christian theology. It's a it's a very kind of um, degraded and distorted Christian-ish view that you have of the world and it's a it's a heretical view. Um, but you already have a view. You already have a theology, you already have belief that's step number one. Step number two is to convince you of just how Jesus-y it really is. And step number three is to show you the embodiment of that dignity, worth, and compassion that you so resonate with. And to say, well, here is compassion himself. Here is kindness on legs. And I need you to meet the person who makes sense of all these values. Because if you're just left with values, it is such a, such thin gruel. And the problem with having values is, you know, values cannot forgive you. You know, we all fail at these values. Values cannot forgive you. Only a person can forgive you. Only the person who embodies these values, Jesus Christ, can forgive you. And so that that's where we really need to go with this. Pull, pull at the thread of these values until at the other end of them we meet the person of Jesus. And, you know, I met a guy in church uh, a month ago. I was um, preaching uh at a church out of town and he came up to me afterwards he said oh thank you so much for reading the air we breathe i he said um didn't really have a christian background but i was in the queue to see the queen and i was 12 hours in the queue and um to, to see the queen lying in state and there was this other christian in the line and he started talking about about all these things and said oh you need to read this book the air we breathe and so sent in the book and they they met up afterwards as well and, and then at the end of the air we breathe I said um pick up the gospels and start reading through and and he did and he met Jesus and he's in church and away he goes and I think I think that's the journey that I want people to take. A I'm a believer I already am a believer B my beliefs are already quite Jesus y C, I really need to meet the original. I need to meet the person Jesus B D, I can do that in the scriptures and then I guess E get to church you know and it's it's a journey that some are
0: making that's amazing it's really encouraging i mean i love i loved your book and there's so much in it you quoted some of it there but i love what you said jesus is a person who doesn't simply expect our best but who forgives us at our worst which is a beautiful phrase i love the floating opposites there but um i love how um you said that The thing is, what we're noticing is that people are recognizing that that they value the values of Western culture. But as we're also noticing, perhaps with the kind of the coming together of um, so many of these values become so important to our personal identity. We're a very mentally fragile generation. And so if if I hold these values to be true and if someone offends these values and robs me of things that I consider to be important and my, you know, my identity is so fragile and fractious anyway, then I can instantly find myself offering judgment to others because i feel judged by other people we end up in this culture i guess of you described competitive victimhood culture which i thought was fascinating um and because those values don't judge you and because so much of our you know self and sense of identity is so fragile and so kind of intrinsically linked to these values as well and dignity and all of that i find it's a kind of interesting kind of cauldron of different things going on at the moment But that phrase you used, competitive victimhood, Um, can you expand on what you mean by that? Because I think as you talked about it, it it resonated and it's something that we certainly see and hear a lot about at the moment, even if we don't use those words.
1: Yeah. So all the all the values that I talk about in the book, we sort of we sort of resonate with them, but we've detached them from Jesus and the Jesus story and they've become a bit distorted, And detached from one another, and so like I I start the book by talking about equality, and you detach that from its origins, and it becomes individualism, right? The the second value I I talk about is is compassion. We love the story of the Good Samaritan, and we now know that the right thing to do when you see need by the side of the road is not to do what those jerks do, the the priest and the Levites. Oh my goodness! They, 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 these guys are unconscionable monsters. How could you just walk on by when somebody else is in need? And you hear politicians all the time say, "You know, we we want to have a culture that does not walk on by." And and they'll even reference Luke chapter ten, the the parable of the good Samaritan. I think the par- parable of the good Samaritan has shaped our moral and political imagination perhaps more than any other story ever has, because in that story, Jesus is overturning um, all sorts of different ways of seeing society. You know, if if an Aesop's fable was telling the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Aesop would sort of say, once upon a time there was a guy who got beaten up when he was out late at night in a part of town he shouldn't have been. Idiot. Don't be like that guy. Right? That would be an Aesop's fable. All the Aesop's fables are like that, right? So, like the Greco-Roman world, the, the sort of the traditional religious worlds, would take the story to be, don't be that guy who gets beaten up. Be clever, you know. Um, then the the sort of the um, the moralistic um, religious kind of approach, um, a false understanding of the Old Testament would be the priest and the Levite who would say, well, they've got a job to be done and, you know, we, we don't know why this guy's beaten up by the side of the road. Maybe God wants him there. He's, he's brought it on himself, and if I'm the priest, I've got certain rules that Leviticus has given to me, and I need to, you know, I need to process those rules. I need to be under, under that law, um, and so they wouldn't have thought that there's anything wrong with that, but now, having had that story told to us for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, we know that the right thing to do is to um, draw near to the person, draw near to the needs, to meet that need with outpoured love, to invest in that person, to be compassionate. You know, that's that's one of the great verbs. You know, he he drew near and filled with compassion. He cares for the guy. And and so that has built our society in in huge ways. And it doesn't matter whether you're on the right of politics, on the left of politics, um, whether you think it's through charity that we should be the Good Samaritan, or whether you think it's through state provision that we should be the Good Samaritan. Either way, everyone says um, you mustn't walk on by. Now, what happens when you are divorced from the Scriptures, divorced from Jesus and the Jesus Revolution, but you still have this notion that there is um, a goodness, a transcendent value to compassion? And I think less and less do we want to um, help the victim... I think more and more we want to be the victim, um, because in so many ways that's easier, isn't it? In in so many ways, um, to claim victim status and to claim it first before the other guy gets in is to own for yourself a certain cachet, but it's a cachet that's been borrowed entirely from, from Christianity, <laughs> where Jesus, the great victim on the cross, is the one who we've been you know worshipping as Lord for 2,000 years. And so in no other culture do people race to become a victim. It wouldn't make sense in cultures that have not been built by the Jesus story. It only makes sense in a culture that's been built by the Jesus story. Um, But, you know, instead of developing the thick skin that it requires to be a Good Samaritan, we kind of develop the thin skin that it requires to be a victim um, and and to... uh to demand that the rest of the society be the good samaritan to us and so yeah it wasn't wasn't my phrase uh, competitive victimhood it's uh, sociologists have been using it for a while now to to talk about uh this very noticeable trend um among among people and it's not just a gen z thing right yeah. it's not just um a younger generation thing I think it's a profoundly post-Christian thing, and it's, it's happened for discernibly theological reasons.
0: Mm, and I guess, so here's, here's where my brain goes, and like you can tell me what you think about these thoughts. Like, there's a, a chance that these, this victimhood idea is, is bleeding up the generation's, if it did start with Gen Z, say because Gen Z are the a kind of a generation being born that have access to the internet, and so therefore have access to all of the information that could possibly be known by every human being, and it's almost in knowing all of the stuff that we know, not only do we, on the one hand, feel overwhelmed by the complexity of the world, um, terrified by how much there is out there and how insignificant and small a cog we are in this global machine and yet we're also fed this kind of diet of expressive individualism that you are really important you're like well, i don't know where that comes from because you know looking at the universe i don't seem to be that important and how complex the world is and that fills me with a sense of dread and terror but then also the more advances in our understanding of nature and the taming of nature through technique human technique means that we are able to label and understand our um, cognitive problems and challenges that we're facing and so we we feel ourselves to be Victim may be a Christian term or a negative term for some people, but we feel ourselves to be so incredibly powerless and weak. And so by claiming a victimhood status in some level excuses us from having to be the supermen that Nietzsche says the future belongs to. You think I'm not a superman. I feel confused and scared by the world and I have mental health problems and I'm lonely um, and my parents are divorced and I don't really know what a dad looks like. And actually, because I'm also fed this diet that I'm really important, I believe I should be able to change the world and so I can do that through activism perhaps, but that doesn't seem to get anywhere so I seem to feel quite angry and that just makes me feel even worse. And so it's kind of this again. It's just kind of complex mess that we find ourselves in. That victimhood isn't necessarily a, a label we're trying to get one up over someone else. It's it's perhaps a an admission that I'm really scared and I can't change the world and I don't know what to do about that. I want a savior. Maybe if I shout loud enough, some government organization will change the law and help me. I don't know. What do you think of some of those thoughts?
1: Yeah, I I think, and in a sense, what you want to do is not deny any of that, but to press deeper into that and say, oh no, in that sense, you're even more of a victim. In that sense, you really are the guy beaten up by the side of the road left for dead. And you're utterly screwed. Until the Good Samaritan with a capital G, capital S comes along. Christ, right? (laughs) And so in, in a sense, you need to press deeper into Luke chapter 10 and the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I, I always love doing this with people. It's, it's so interesting that Jesus tells that story um, off the back of a question that a teacher of the law asks. And the teacher of the law asks, who is my neighbor? I know I'm meant to love my neighbor. But come on, <laughs> really is like how, and basically he's asking, you know, how narrowly can I shrink the circle of love, you know? Because, um, you know, on a good day, I can love the people that are very close to me. And if my blood sugar is not tanking too much, and if they don't tick me off too much, I can be a little bit loving to the people who are really close to me. I, I love my neighbor as long as my neighbor is incredibly close. And of course, what does Jesus do with the parable of the Good Samaritan? You know, your neighbor could be anyone, even even your enemy, right? He's, he's taking the circle of love and he's like expanding it out to the fringes of human civilization. But the, the lawyer, the teacher of the law asks, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a story. There's a guy, he gets, he's a fallen man, right? He falls from this heavenly city, Jerusalem on his way due east to Jericho. And it's a descent and he falls into the hands of robbers and he's left for dead. So he's a man, and you know, you know Hebrew, Hebrew, the you know, word for man is Adam, right? They, he's a fallen man, right? And then there are three neighbors who come along, right? First neighbor, priest, walks on by, second neighbor, Levite, walks on by. And the priest, you know, you, you can think of law. The Levites, they they sort of taught the law. So you could think the prophets, you know, <laughs> here is Adam, fallen. Law comes along, no use. Prophets come along, no use. (gasps) Here comes a stranger, one from entirely outside the system. One who was even called a Samaritan in John chapter 8. And here he comes. And that word for compassion, when he saw the man, he had compassion. It's a word that's only ever used to describe Jesus' emotional life. It's this stomach-churning pity kind of word. And so he comes and he pours out oil, always linked with the Spirit in the Bible, wine always linked with blood he pours out his blood he pours out his his spirit as it were lifts the guy up takes him to the 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 inn he gives him two denarii right and the only other thing we know about a denarius in the gospels is it's a day's wage it gets you through one day so he gives him two denarii and he says i'll be back when that's you know, when when that's run out. So you're like, well, when's he coming back? Oh, he's come back on the third day. That's interesting. So here we've got this this guy from outside the system who shows Christ-like compassion to Adam, who has fallen. And the only hope for this fallen guy is the true good Samaritan who pours out blood, who pours out his spirit, and and so show, shows that level of of stomach churning, pity, and compassion and love. And then Jesus finishes the story by saying, who was a neighbor to the man left for dead? And it's fascinating. So the lawyer says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, right, you are. Who is a neighbor to the man left for dead? So whose sandals are we meant to put ourselves into? Who is a neighbor to me? He asks, right? Who is a neighbor to the man left for dead? So I and the man left for dead, first and foremost. And that's why I say we need to just press into the parable of the Good Samaritan more and say, okay, you're not just a victim because you can't get onto the ho- the, the housing ladder, right? You're not just a victim because you came, came from a broken home. Like, you're, you are the ultimate fallen guy. You are perishing and you're utterly stuffed and a, a new government is not going to do it for you. You need Jesus. You need the ultimate good Samaritan. And so we need to press down deeper into okay, there's a there's a far more profound sense in which we're utterly victimized um, by ourselves at times. We we self-sabotage, you know, through sin and 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 then sabotage others. And we need Jesus. And so we need a more profound sense that I am far more of a victim than I'd ever seen. But we also more than that, need a profound sense that Jesus is saviour. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is compassion on legs. And he is the one who we need far more than any political you know, economic development in this world. And so it's it's a, it's about pressing into both. I'm more of a victim than I had thought, but Jesus is more of a saviour than I dreamed.
0: Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that is... Uh... Yeah, that is incredible. And to press deep into that parable is, um, I've never heard that before. Well, I think I was in a class once and someone talked about Augustine's allegorical reading of good Sam- of the Good Samaritan, which is yeah. a lot more fanciful than that. And so it kind of put, pe- put people off doing any level of typological reading, shall we say, of the Good Samaritan. But what you've done there is so clearly feels so... Biblical, it kind of, it, yeah, it feels like it was in the mind of Jesus to do that as well in the story.
1: G- Jesus as the Good Samaritan was just the bog standard like interpretation
0: of that parable right up until about the 1700s. So. What? Say more about that. That's really interesting. Because <laughs> we only ever hear this about you should be the Good Samaritan. That, that's a problem, isn't it?
1: Well, eventually you do become the Good Samaritan because, like, first of all, he says, or oh, who is a neighbor to the man left for dead? And then the lawyer grudgingly says, well, I guess the man who showed him compassion, and then he says, go and do likewise. So like you go on a journey throughout the story. First of all, who are you in the story? I'm the guy left for dead. I need the beautiful stranger to save me. But then once you get that, yeah, then you're kind of raised on your feet by the good Samaritan, and then it's a case of go and do likewise. And ever since that point, you know, we have. Gone and, gone and done likewise, and, and Christians invented hospitals and hospices and charities and orphan care and all, all that great stuff. Um, so it's not it's not wrong to say that we should be the Good Samaritan eventually, but I do think it's wrong to short-circuit the way in which you become the Good Samaritan, and the way in which you become the Good Samaritan is not by determining really hard to be compassionate, it's first of all to recognize I'm left for dead and I need the poured out blood of Jesus. I need the poured in spirit of Jesus. Um, I need him to take me to church, the great inn, where, where, I, where I learn compassion from him. And then I can go out and, and, and do likewise. But we only love because he first loved us. And that's the way around it's got to be.
0: So you said until the 17th century, this is the standard way of reading the Good Samaritan. So what happened in the 17th century? (laughs) Did we lose a lot of our christ-centered reading of the scriptures and did it kind of couple with the age of um, enlightenment and invention the next discovery that kind of put human beings at the center of the story have i answered my own question Um, what do you think think? yeah yeah
1: i think that's exactly the sort of thing and biblical studies began to be detached from the church and began to be entrusted to the academy and suddenly the scriptures are less given to the church to be proclaimed in the context of worship, and they are more studied in the academy and atomized and um, treated in, in a more academic kind of way. And and you know, and nowadays it's gotten to the point where you know, of course, if you do a PhD, um, you're probably looking at half a verse in Jonah, and that and that's your p- because because it's got to be this novel new thing that that you know goes very deep into a, a particular sub-discipline of biblical studies and so you know if even people working like on the minor prophets um uh maybe don't really talk to people who you know who do the major prophets <laughs> let alone who are old testament theologians let, let alone who are you know all of you know the whole the whole of the scriptures and so th- this atomization i think of, of biblical study and the divorce of biblical study from the arena of worship In the life of the church um i mean there is there are still great commentaries that are written and biblical studies i'm not i'm not saying is a is an entirely dead loss there's something to be gained by treating just the grammatical historical method of exegesis and just going through and passing out you know words in in that much more sort of scientific atomistic um kind of sense there's there are gains there I think there are also losses. <laughs> and and even just the discipline of um church history and biblical studies, they they tend to be quite different kind of departments um in terms of theological education. Whereas, you know, a, a modern scholar of, of Luke's gospel, I think, would learn much from an Augustan scholar who who could tell you more about, you know, his interpretation. Um but I think the atomization of our studies, um, has had some losses.
0: Mm, That's really encouraging. So, I mean, I became a Christian from a non-Christian household. So I feel like I arrived at this late and I think as a result of arriving at it late from a very secular oriented household, um, I found that doubt has been a regular companion in my journey. Um, asking these questions not being able to let a lot of this go and oftentimes feeling quite troubled by some of the the questions and thoughts and ideas that arise you're an an evangelist and an apologist who's used to grappling with those hard questions so when you shared what you just shared about the good samaritan I'll tell you where my brain goes. Like it does two things. On the one hand, I'm like, this is incredible. Jesus is wiser than I had realized. And I thought Jesus was pretty wise already. He's a remarkable teacher. He must be God. It get my brain goes there on the one hand. On the other hand, my brain also goes, This seems far too clever and convenient to have been made up by Jesus. Therefore, this must be a man-made philosophy and idea. Therefore, I'm not sure I can trust this. It all seems a little bit too good to be true. Um, just being honest about where my brain goes. And so I can find myself as a Christian often living with this kind of split mind of, well, which interpretation do I go with? <laughs> well, because Jesus has built up a track record in my life over 15 years, I am veer a lot more towards the worship side. But what would you say to someone like me or even just me rather than someone like me? Um, yeah. To help them process that kind of I might say darker side of the mind that would want to disbelieve a lot of the good that I hear and consider in Jesus.
1: Maybe press into the doubt a bit more. I think so often like everybody has doubts, like whether whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, um we all we all have. So many doubts, and those doubts are only increasing. We're seeing, you know the breakdown of institutional trust as a society-wide thing. Um, and so doubt is here to stay. Um, but but maybe we shouldn't think simply in terms of doubt when i when I hear a doubt, I'm doubting this belief, but I'm doubting this belief on account of this different worldview this different, you know, structure of beliefs that are over here. And at, at times you, you need to doubt your doubts, don't you? Um, sometimes you just need to like, uh, you know, I know whom I have believed and, you know, Jesus is trustworthy and you just, you know, um, you just sort of ignore the doubt, but, but sometimes you need to, okay, well let's, let's press into that. Here, here is a doubt that, um, the good Samaritan is too clever. It's so clever that it might not have come from Jesus. All right, well, let's, let's like dive into that. Well then who, who is that guy? (laughs) This this guy sounds amazing Um, because I haven't even gotten into all the intertextual kind of echoes of other parts of scripture. Like, in Luke chapter 10. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, he's, he's bringing in stuff from, um, Genesis, obviously he's bringing in stuff from Exodus. He's bringing in stuff from Deuteronomy. He's bringing in stuff from Kings. He's bringing in stuff from the Psalms. He's, he's weaving it all together into like what amounts to about seven or eight verses. Right. Um, and undeniably it is probably the short story. It's, well, I wouldn't say undeniably it's the short story that's built the world more than any other, but I would say it, it has to be in, in someone's top five. It's definitely number one for me in terms of the the vast impact it has had on cultures down through the centuries. So it, it's a profoundly biblical thing. It is revolutionary in completely um, upending the classical notion and the Aesop's fable. It's, it's upending the sort of the the conservative legalistic Pharisee um, Jewish view, and in establishing this really surprising um, ethic, and it manages to introduce an ethic that um was not obvious to anybody when he was saying it and then became obvious to everybody. That's some going. Um, you can tell it you can tell a story that encapsulates what a culture already believes. Jesus was telling the story uh, that encapsulates a culture that hadn't yet been seen. And still people are like, oh, yes, the good Samaritan, that's the way forward. And, and did that embracing like the most hated figure <laughs> that his hearers could imagine. <laughs> like, he's like, let me, let me tell you about somebody who I know you hate and he's going to be the hero and you're going to end up loving him. And then I'm going to tell you all to be like him. And you're going to do it.
0: Mm. And I suppose it was, <laughs> it was backed up by the fact that he then went on to do it, you know, to be to yeah. be that guy. So, uh, you know, his death and resurrection is what makes sense of and get, adds power and potency to everything he'd said before. Um, and I suppose almost in what you're saying is it, it the beauty in it is now obvious to us, perhaps because it. It speaks to a, yeah. to quote Narnia, it speaks to a deeper magic in the world uh, or a universal Tao, to quote C.S. Lewis again, that is out there and resonant in all of us to some degree. Uh, we might talk about Augustine's common grace, um, which is a lot more common, but a lot deeper and richer than we appreciate as well. Yeah. And I mean, just the, what it made me think of is, um... I've got I've got a thing right
1: towards the end of the book where I say, well, hang on, was was the Jesus story all just fabricated? And I said sort of, I entertained the thought experiment: what would it be like for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to be the geniuses behind the Gospels rather than what the Gospels present, which is that they are the idiots who are preserving the genius who is Jesus. And uh, and so I, I just say, you know, like imagine the writer's room as someone commissions the authors of the Gospel, and they just say, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I have a job for you. I know you've had no training or prior experience, but we need you to write the most influential works in all of literature. As for the timing, we'll have to move on this, unfortunately. It would have been better to wait a couple of centuries before inventing our legends. That way none of Christ's contemporaries could contradict our story, but we are where we are. The Apostle Paul has forced the pace, writing his letters to churches around the Mediterranean. He's been preaching Jesus as the promised Messiah, and heaven knows why, but all these people have believed in God on a cross. The story seems to be working, so now we need you to fill in the details. Please, can you write the origin story for our hero? Paul's letters gave us the bare bones. We want you to put warm flesh on them. Are you up to it? It won't be easy. We need this to be the life and times of the greatest figure in human history. God, but also man. Sinless, but fully alive. Pure, but with profound depths. The judge of the world, but with bottomless compassion. The fulfillment of all Jewish hopes, but with a global appeal. A man in time, but a man for all times. We need a hero with heart-melting kindness yet steely determination. We need him blasting the self-righteous and befriending sinners. We need sublime ethical teaching to fall from his lips, the kind that builds civilizations. We need extraordinary miracles from him, the kind that would have been noticed and therefore could have been contradicted by the generation to which you're writing. We need a credible narrative arc whereby he remains impeccably righteous but is nonetheless condemned as a blasphemer. And we need it all to stand up to scrutiny, scriptural, theological, geographic, linguistic, literary, and historical. It needs to be believable both near and far, now and later, for those who've lived through these times and for all generations to come. Got it? Now get to work. And so that, that's that, that's just like entertaining the thought experiment. The doubt comes in. Maybe maybe some people fabricated it. Like okay, let's go with that. Let's see if there's an internal consistency there. And uh, I I think the the Jesus supposition uh, stands up to more scrutiny.
0: Yeah, I mean, I love that bit in the book. And also there's the um, the stuff on the Alpha video is helpful as well, that then using the kind of textual criticism points out that there haven't been changes either. It's not like we've got early manuscripts dating back to very recent after very recent after when they were written. So we can't even just say, oh, yeah, it's very clever, but maybe it's just changed over the centuries and bits were added. Well, we can't because we've got early copies that show how faithful to the original our copies actually are. So something happened, and this is what's so remarkable remarkable about the world it's such a different place than so many of us think that it is it's a place in which this man Jesus of Nazareth came and said the things that he said and did the things that he did and for me I just I find it so hard to get beyond that every time I pick up the Bible and read it I'm just I'm just astounded at how people can live in a world without considering this, without reckoning and kind of squaring up to the fact that this exists. Like all of this stuff is recorded. What are we going to do about right. this?
1: Yeah. God, wa- God walked the it's earth. It's scary. And everything's now different for everyone forever. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, even even, yeah. even the way that we use the word God, yeah. you know, again, I was at a group recently and they were talking about, oh, God's like this, God's like that. And I was like, wait on, we're all assuming we know who God is. Like I think if, if we were to ask the question in the ancient world, do you believe in God? They would say, well, which God? But the, the God of the Bible has triumphed over them all. And uh, I love what um, is it, uh, Athanasius says. that When did that happen, that people stopped worshipping idols? It was after the resurrection that people realized the idols were actually emptied of their power compared to the one that can defeat death. You know, that's that's a God worth worshipping right there. <laughs>
1: right, yeah. And I think it's it's still a good question to ask: the which God are you talking about? <laughs> um, because yeah, as as Christianized as we've become, um, we're all some kind of heretic as well. And so if someone if someone doesn't believe in God, um, then you ask the question: Well, which God don't you believe in? Um, and usually, you know, the God they don't believe in is some kind of Zeus figure with a thunderbolt ready to hurl. And you you can say, Well, I don't believe in that God either. But, but also, if someone does believe in God, uh, it is still worth pressing into, which, which God are we talking about here? Because again, the Zeus figure is, is often sort of in, in the background. And then the good news is being able to proclaim, no, Jesus is the image of an otherwise invisible God. Reason why nobody knows who God is like is He's invisible. We we don't know what He's like. There's been a divorce. We don't understand God, but Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He He is the one who's on show. And look at Him as He's come to planet Earth. He is the most famous man who ever lived. He is the most significant figure in history. And you know He walked on water and He healed the sick and He raised the dead. And like I think He's the one. It's it's just and and here is a God that you can finally believe in. You know He's not just like electricity or a distant power. He you know, he's, he's the God who, like the Good Samaritan, pours out his blood, pours out his spirit, who raises up the, the lowly and blasts the lofty. He's a God you can believe in. Mm,
0: uh, he's so, so beautiful. I'm so thrilled of a Christian. It makes me want to be a Christian. It makes me want to follow this God. He's you American. can be, Jez. Um, this very day. <laughs> <laughs> so, almost to circle back to some of the things you, you, you talked about in an illustration earlier about the conversations you have with with friends, either on a plane or at the school gate, etc., about Christian faith. I think part of the reason why what you're saying I think is really helpful about doubting your doubts or plumbing deeper into those doubts is because many people well many for I think the doubt as a concept it 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 manifests and presents always as purely an intellectual problem, whereas actually it's an emotional reaction. My observation is that doubt elicits emotion of fear and shame i'm afraid that i'm wrong and i feel shame that if i'm wrong i'm, a, I'm an idiot and so therefore that kind of it, i feel scared and alarmed and where i'm going with this is i think then as christians we can find ourselves feeling quite scared and defensive towards Non Christians, people who have good questions and good accusations about Christianity, and as a result, people often find themselves either avoiding going public about their Christian faith because they're scared of what to do uh, when someone asks them difficult questions. Um, We do that on the one hand, or we get quite defensive and aggressive, and just you know call people names, or we shoot people down, or we just quote kind of bad statistics to try to make our point, etc. So, what the question I'm coming to is, you know, you are. an an evangelist who spends a lot of his time talking to non-believers about Christianity. And I would presume it sounds like you feel very comfortable in those environments and don't feel scared of people and their questions. So what would you say to a lot of people in our churches who perhaps do feel scared of the concept of evangelism? How would you help them? It's a long-winded way of asking that question. I think it's
1: a fundamental question because... Um, Jesus said, Matthew 12, verse 34, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if my words aren't coming, there might be a heart issue. Now, some people are more extroverted. Some people are more introverted. You you, you and I, uh, Jez, we're very extroverted sort of people. And so we're, we're blabbermouths about everything. Um, but if the proportion of me blabbing about Jesus goes, um, Ducks beneath the proportion of me blabbing about the football or the cricket. There's a problem, right? And you, you might be a very introverted person listening, and you don't blab about anything. But but if the proportion of words that you use <laughs> about Jesus dips below the proportion that you use to discuss the weather or your grandkids, um, then there's a, there's an issue there from from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and and therefore I think the the solution to being an evangelist is to hear the good news again, to be convinced of the goodness of Jesus and the power of Jesus. Um, I often do a, um, an exercise when I'm teaching evangelism to maybe a church group and they want to get better at sharing their faith personally. And I say, what's, what's the thing you need to do with the gospel? What's the thing you need to do with the gospel? And of course, they know I'm there as an evangelist and they know they're there meant to be learning how to evangelize. And so they fall into the trap every single time. And they say, Share it. (laughs) What's the thing I need to do with the gospel? Share it. Nonsense. Right? The thing you're meant to do with the gospel is believe it, like receive it, welcome it, enjoy it inhabit it, right? That that's what you're meant to do with the gospel and until, um, you overflow with words because from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and so if you really don't think Jesus is better than the modern secular story, then I'm not surprised that you don't want to tell your friends. And it must feel like the most incredible burden. For church pastors like me on a sunday to say hey everybody get out there this week and share news that is worse than anything your friends and family already believe Um, and and i think there are areas in life where we think that's true Maybe, maybe we think jesus is better in as regards getting you eternal life so as regards getting you eternal life jesus is better than the other options but as regards, you know, fulfillment, as regards identity politics, as regards sex and marriage, um, as regards other kind of hot button issues, um, Jesus must be tolerated in those areas so that we can get the eternal life thing. And and I think that that's just a real shame. And so what I try to do in all evangelism training is just convince people of the goodness of Jesus in every area. We've 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 discussed one of the big hot button issues, you know, sex, right? Like is the Jesus sexual revolution really better than the swinging 60s? Is it really 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 actually better? And I believe that with all my heart, and it's not it's not that I have much better statistics than other people. It's it's that I have I I just have a genuine core conviction in my gut that Jesus telling men to restrain their sexuality and the cosmic romance of heaven and earth being proclaimed through sex is just like orders of magnitude better news than anything (laughs) the world has ever dreamt up. And so if you don't think Jesus is better news than expressive individualism, or the sexual revolution of the 1960s. I I really, I'm not surprised that you're not vocal about your faith. But I guarantee you, for all the things that you think are amazing, you are already an evangelist. Like, if you... Th- if you th- i've got a friend who just thinks center parks is just the most he, he doesn't understand why anyone would ever go on any other holiday apart from center parks and if you if you get anywhere near the topic of center parks he'll just oh mate it's like this and like this, like like he he's got the package and I, it doesn't matter like how expensive center parks is i'm like i would have to remortgage to go but fine he will sell me on it because he's just so convinced you know we need we need jesus to be the center parks of our heart that's what we
0: need <laughs> <laughs> There you go. There's an, a, a Christian evangelist strapline, if ever there was one. That's superb. Oh, it's really helpful advice and really, yeah, helpful comment. Um, about, and particularly that stuff about the gospel. You know, we're to believe it. We're to love Jesus. We're to sit at his feet. We're to be devoted to him. We're to be a disciple of his first and foremost. And then learn to follow him and be led by the Spirit in all of our conversations with people. I think a lot of, um, a lot of us, because... I mean, it's as old as Proverbs, isn't it? That the fear of man is is a snare, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because we're afraid of what people think of us. And because, for me, I think, uh, is it Peter Berger's concept of plausibility structures? Because we're in a society that has made plausible secular humanism. we therefore find the idea of kicking against that more implausible as a part of what church is, is about being part of an embedded community that makes plausible the way of Jesus and makes it beautiful for you. But I do think so often we're in a society that thinks Christianity is implausible and so therefore we find it hard to to imagine living as a Christian and just getting excited about Jesus. But also there's the kind of related to that, you know, I might think that Jesus is better than the sexual, Jesus' wisdom is better than the sexual revolution. But there's also a part of me that knows to become a Christian, I'm asking you to surrender your pride, repent of your sin, receive a king as Lord of your life. I'm I'm confronting your human pride that's as old as Eden. And I'm wanting to challenge you to give up self-worship to worship jesus and i know that's not always going to be received with joy by people um so how do you but yet the kind of t- the standard if you like propositional packaged gospel that we'd be familiar with is you need to convince people of how uh, much they failed against the law's standards and that they're all guilty and they're all sinners and that jesus comes to rescue them but people don't seem to talk like that as much as they used to There seems to be much more of a of a reasoning around the value a bit like your book actually the reasoning around the value of christian values and and faith for our lives but nevertheless there still does need to come a point where people receive the truth the hard news that they are sinners in need of a savior so perhaps just talk to me about some of your reflections on what i've just said well i think um
1: you still need to be utterly convinced that as you evangelize this gay couple and you are very aware of what a life of discipleship would require of them if on the other side of of receiving christ they then have to sort through that issue and bring um their relationship and their and their sex lives before the lord in repentance and faith you've still got to be so convinced that jesus is better and that the very the very best thing for them in this life and the next is to follow Jesus in the circumstances you know in which they found themselves. You've got to you've got to be so convinced of that. And in the same way as you evangelize your your Muslim friends and you recognize that if this person says yes to Jesus, they might be cut off from their family and cut off from their family in a culture where family really 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 means something and the cost of them following Jesus is is vast. You've got to be so convinced that um, it would be better for them to follow Jesus in this life and the next, right? And I and I'm not sure we kind of do think that, which which I think is a bit bizarre because like if you're evangelizing uh, you know, a banker in the city of London, do we have the same butterflies in our stomach? Thinking to ourselves, oh my goodness, if this guy follows Jesus, he's gonna have to give away millions, <laughs> right? Like we're not, we're not, we're not thinking, and, and yet Jesus would. Absolutely invite us to think that because it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. <laughs> it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Like we should really be thinking. Um, oh my goodness, it's it's incredibly costly. It costs it costs everything to follow Jesus. And it's the absolute best thing in the universe. And we, I think we need to think both. And 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 I wonder whether we whether we say our friends knows for them. Um Because we don't believe in Jesus enough, not because they don't believe in Jesus enough, because we like, oh, if I, if I really go hard on the Jesus thing with this person, it would mean a worse life for them. That's, that's kind of the thinking that, that afflicts us. And we, we absolutely need to to like deconvert from that, from that unbelief because like absolutely the best thing for that gay couple is to come to Jesus and then to bring that relationship in their entire sex sex lives to the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, change me. And the best thing for our Muslim friends is to come to Christ, no matter what their family are going to think. And the best thing for the millionaire is to come to Jesus, you know, no matter how costly it will be, you know, for their, for their life circumstances. And yeah, I I think always, always it's a problem with our hearts, isn't it? That's
0: amazing. And as you're saying, Jesus Jesus is often rebuked for his disciples. You think his disciples, the people who've left everything to follow him. So the people with faith, because they're following him. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long do I need to put up with you? So you realise the issue, even for his disciples, is one of repentance and faith. Like, believe me more I see that in the disciples. I see that in my own heart. That's a really helpful answer, going that it is to not say other people's nose for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I love that. And, and
1: straight after Jesus says about the, the rich man and the, the camel through the eye of a needle, Peter then spoke up and says, we've left everything to follow you. And then Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So, like, he's like... You will receive a hundred times as much in this life. Do you believe that, Peter? Or or are you going to play the victim card with me and say, oh, we're really persecuted. We've left everything for you, Jesus. He's like, <laughs> shut up, Peter. You're getting a hundred times as much in this life and eternal life. Okay. Like it's a real rebuke to Peter who's trying to play the victim card here. He's, I'm being persecuted. Is this persecution, Jesus? And yeah, okay. He's going to get crucified upside down. Sure. But that is better. It's a hundred times better in this life to be a Christian. If if we could just believe that as we evangelize our gay neighbors, as we evangelize our Muslim friends, as we evangelize the rich who are so hard to get into the kingdom of heaven, it's a hundred times better to be a Christian. It really is, even in this life.
0: Wow. That's really, even in, in what he said, like it, it's a hundred times better, but it, it, it's not without its cost. And it's dis, its, it's distressing emotions. You are going to be persecuted. You are going to be hated. But even then, it's better. You think of old uh, polycarp, is it being thrown to the lions? You know, just deny Jesus and we won't let the lions eat you. You're an old or the fire, one of the two, uh, the fire burn you. We'll let you go free. And like, it would be better for me to remain faithful to Jesus and allow these flames or lions, because my memory doesn't serve me very well, to get me than it would. To deny Jesus you think he's willing to embrace pain and death and still says this is still better because Jesus is that precious and I think sometimes in the church perhaps if you've been a Christian for a while or been around church for a long time you just you just take it as a given take it as for granted and yet often what you need to see is to see your faith and see the church through the eyes of a new believer afresh we had a girl become a Christian last week and I saw her this Sunday and she was just glowing She said, I just feel so powerful. Like she said, this is amazing. (laughs) I think she thinks every prayer is going to get answered. And, you know, she just is just overflowing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, Yeah. that's how precious Jesus is. Sometimes as Christians, we need to awaken ourselves to that again and to how good church is as a community of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and you know, we think, oh yeah, yeah, but that's just so remarkable in a society like this where people have fewer and fewer brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, certainly, etc So really, really helpful. Glenn, I mean, we're pretty, we're essentially out of time, but I could talk to you for so much longer and just keep drawing out all of this wonderful, helpful, just personally for me, helpful stuff to encourage me and others in their, Walk with the Lord, and in the way that they share Him. Is there anything that's just yeah you know, on your heart or mind to share as we draw things to a close?
1: You mentioned about uh, implausible and how implausible it seems for people to to be a Christian nowadays in the 21st century. Um, I see great hope because like it's so implausible, like to be a non-Christian in the 21st century. It's so implausible, like it's become unlivable. Life has become utterly unlivable without Jesus. Like like really. You know, I mean I I grew up in the 1990s when everything was amazing. All the music was incredibly depressing, but like all like we we were living it seemed to be the end of history. You know, the 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 iron curtain fell and the Berlin Wall came down and it was it was just going to be um it was just going to be prosperity forever and and just modern secular liberalism would rule the roost and um we all had our sony discmans so we were happy and and we're we're recognizing now that life is really unlivable and what's what's utterly implausible is life without jesus and what becomes incredibly plausible is like you say peter berger and plausibility structures you know what the plausibility structure in this world is it's the local church you know, what's plausible is having mothers and brothers and sisters together, united as this really, like, weak, weird family, and we're a bit dysfunctional, but my goodness, we are the largest sociological phenomenon the world has ever seen, and we're this diverse group, you know, the world is, like, aching for diversity and inclusion, and we're like, yeah, we've been, we've been doing this thing for 2,000 years, come <laughs> along. see see what it actually looks like in local church, and... Like, you know, th- this girl has just come to come to faith. We're, we're seeing the, the joy of the Lord, and then we're carrying those who are grieving and mourning, and we're, we're a family that, that can carry one another through. Like, we, we do have the answers, and they're, they're not these sort of lofty intellectual kind of ideologies. We've got Jesus, and he births himself in our life in a way that just, makes sense of the everyday and, and we can live day by day as brothers and sisters in Jesus and we just and, and therefore as full of, of, of Jesus that our hearts need to be you know I, I'm often telling people finish the sentence that's what I love about Jesus dot 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 if you're doing that that is the epicenter of evangelism and close to the epicenter of evangelism is that's what I love about my church and just tell stories about your church be enthusiastic about your church and then get inviting people into it because it's it's the non-christian life that is implausible and we've got the plausibility structure we've we've got the church of Jesus Christ we meet with him he is the most profound figure with with towering personality with stooping love and he is compelling we draw people into church, we tell people, look, 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 look. And at some point they just look and faith just flies out of them as they see the, the glory of Jesus. It's, it's wonderful. And it's it's happening all over the world. Let's be a part of it.
0: Oh man, well, great place to leave it. Glenn, thank you so much for being with us today and for everything you shared and for your book, The Air We Breathe, available now in all good bookshops. Uh, I'll put a description to the book and links to where people can buy it from in the episode notes. For now, Glenn, thanks for being with us.
1: Yes, thanks for having me.